Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How's it going? Oh, I'm kind of excited about this episode, actually. Okay. Why um, is that? I feel nervous. Re- okay. Because um, we are going to do... It's uh, episode 230, so it's a profile, blah, blah, blah. I'll get yeah. it all out later. Yeah. Um, ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every ten episodes. Um, we're going to profile someone who... A, doesn't have very many f- films to his name as a director. As a director, yeah. But also is kind of a hated person. Like, mm-hmm. I think kind of is not the right thing to have said. He is definitely a hated person yes. by most right-thinking people. I mean, this is more controversial than us doing an Elia Kazan oh, very much profile. So. so I'm kind of excited. Well, nervous. Because I think there's a lot to talk about, but I'm nervous about the emails we're going to get for even maybe even doing this in the first place. But I trust that you and I are going to do it in a nuanced fashion in the Battleship Retention tradition. The person we're talking about, of course, is Mel Gibson. Yes, Mel He's Gibson got, as a director. As a director. He's got is what we're going to be talking about. Four films to his name. But you mentioned nuance, and uh, this was something uh, we wanted to talk about sort of at the top of the show. Um, should, should I... In the broadest possible sense, because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, uh, should I talk about what what was on my mind, or do you want to talk no, about how you I'll, arrived at nuance? Yeah, I'll get... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what was on your mind might be a little too inside baseball for most people to even care. Fair enough. Um, but I was talking about uh, the Battleship Retention blog. Um, BattleshipRetention.com. It's, it's me and Tyler. It's Tyler and I, and a whole bunch of other uh, awesome writers... Um, I always forget all the names because there's so many of them, but there's Kyle and Scott and Matt and Jack and Jason and Josh and Charles and Daniel. I think that's it, yes. <laughs> I don't know. I and occasionally gr- I Josh. Did you say Josh? Yeah, I said oh, Josh because I, I group. Here's the thing. Okay. I group Kyle and Scott together. I don't know why. I could see but that. But I think because you're friends with both of them. I think they started and, writing for us within the same... And I don't really yeah. know. I mean, they're both nice guys. I just don't really know them. Yeah. And then I group... Matt and Jack together because Matt brought Jack into right. the fold, and we're so glad he did. Jack's been awesome for us, very much so. Um, I group Jason and Josh together because they are friends, and I've known them for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I group Charles and Daniel together because they're the two that don't live in Los Angeles. Or right. Does Charls live in Los Angeles? I don't, even I don't know, where know where he lives. Yeah, I, I don't know, and I don't care. We yeah. all live in the blogosphere. That's the way yeah. I look at it. I don't look at it that way. That's ridiculous. So um, yeah, ch- check out the, those. Uh, those those blogs and please comment on them we enjoy the discussions that are ha- like even after me just, bear- just kind of mentioning it a little bit last week kind of oh did i drive a <laughs> drive into the ground a little bit <laughs> um after mentioning it last week we've gotten some comments and it's been fun to read you've participated in the in the comments i sure did uh, yes and I, I will you know uh right now i can't exactly uh slack off at my day job it's things are kind of fucking crazy at my day job for the it's next kind of your weeks. fault for taking that promotion yeah yeah, it was a, I don't know, I don't know if it was a promotion, it was a transfer okay. to a different facility, but my title is the same, mm-hmm. but it was a pay raise. Well, there you so go. So I don't know if that counts as a promotion. They want to get what they pay for, David. Okay. And they paid for David. <laughs> All right. Uh, so yeah, you were mentioning, uh, so talking about the blogs, blog going yeah, into So I've been, uh, more so than you, because um, you've been doing other stuff mm-hmm. um, and have been very, very busy. But I've been, along with the writers that I've named, some of them more than others, uh, going to press screenings and, see, and writing movie reviews, reviews mm-hmm. of new movies for the website. And I've, 
and the the inside baseball thing that you were talking about that no one would care about um, got me done. I don't know. It was kind of dismissive, but That's I'm just fine. saying. I just don't want. They I might care very much about it, but again, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings no, by see, saying. See, that's the thing. I, like, I don't want it to be the kind of thing where people are like writing us in, like saying, "What is this thing?" Like, oh, it's some secret thing. Yeah, like, I'm not going to tell you. And also, it's not. I think you, it, it's not. It's not scandalous. Or yeah, exactly. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, anyway, we've spent more time talking about it than we should have. Um, but your thing got me thinking about this responsibility I've come to feel, or or, or the question of whether or not I have this responsibility. Um, and again, we'll get to Mel Gibson in a second, but nuance will certainly play into our discussion of Mel Gibson. In a sense. Um, I feel like it is almost irresponsible or lazy of me to either completely lo- love a film or completely dismiss a film. Which is to say I haven't done it. Like, I right. think... Um, if you read, say, my review of Project Nim, I don't think I had a bad word to say about it. Right. And Project Nim is one of the top five movies of the year, of the first mm. half of the year, at least, for me. Um, well, now we're into, uh, you know, almost, what, three quarters of the yeah. year. Um, oh, and, pro- yeah, Project Nim is, is, is way up there. But um, other movies, um, I also, I, yeah, I don't think I was very, I don't think I had anything really negative to say about The Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. But like um, my second favorite movie of the year so far is Miranda July's The Future, mm-hmm. and even though it's my second favorite, I in the review I made sure to, you know, to point out the things that I didn't like about it as well. Mm-hmm. And then you know I just recently reviewed uh, David Dobkin's The Change Up, right? Um, which is, I think, actually my least favorite film of the year so far. Um, but I also made a point to to say that like you know the actors are really doing like Jason Bateman's having a blast Leslie yeah. Mann's bringing more like character to the role than the script even called for Gregory Idson has two scenes but is you know just Gregory Idsoning all over the place and it's uh, <laughs> yeah. uh it, it, he's fun to watch um so uh that's what uh, your thing got me thinking about that mm-hmm. and you've reviewed some movies too and of course, you like any good movie fan. You read a lot of movie reviews. Mm-hmm. That was a comment on the blog. I, yeah, you it, really guilted them into that one. That's but no. Uh, the, someone said on the blog that like we talk about Roger Ebert too much. Yeah, but I feel like I know that I do, and it's and my reason for it. And I mentioned this in my response. I, I'm not upset with him for mentioning that because it's mm-hmm. true. I do I do cite him a lot, uh, and I think it's because first off, there's a certain degree of name recognition, and also. You can say this is good or bad, and you could have an argument either way. Uh, Ebert is very good at tur- at turning a phrase quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be because, along with writing, he's been on television and has experience to the point where it's almost it's probably become instinct to just say things quickly and get right. your point across and speak somewhat definitively. Uh, and so, I find myself often remembering his stance on something more than I remember somebody but else's. Also, like you say, he's more in the public eye than a lot of critics. There's that, So too. sometimes he's just more worth commenting on because right. more people have seen it. But yeah, we don't just read... I read I read plenty of of critics. Mm-hmm. I like uh, I like a Christopher Orr. I like a uh, Stephanie Zacharek. I do like her, yes. Um, that's it. Just those two. I like. I like. I feel like we've talked about Andrew Saris on the podcast before. We've Andrew talked about Jonathan Rosenbaum. Is, is Andrew? You know what? Here's the thing about Andrew Saris. I disagree with him 
almost all the time. And there are moments where I get angry and I feel like he's just an old man who is who has it, it refuses to become accustomed to what movies are now. <laughs> Here's the damnedest thing, though. When I read his reviews, which are often f- fairly nuanced, um, yeah. there are movies that make him angry. And, of course, when somebody is angry, then you'll some nuance will go away. But the way he writes and the way he approaches film, I can't really argue with that. Like, even when I disagree vehemently, which I often do, I can't disregard him. And so that's so I almost when I when I uh, responded I almost wrote Andrew Saris but just because he's <laughs> he's kind of invigorating to read because he is rather contrarian at times but not in the way that Armand White is contrarian yeah. he just I, with Andrew Saris I really get the impression that he actually doesn't like and also yeah uh, Andrew Saris writes well and has a good command of language but doesn't have the uh, he doesn't show off in his vocabulary the way That's that Armand White like is clearly trying to impress us yeah. with his with his word choice. Um, anyway, back to the question though. Yeah, do you agree with my stance, both as a someone who uh, who writes reviews and someone who reads reviews, that um, a review is better if it has something good to say about a bad movie or something bad to say about a good movie? Well, I'm not sure if I'd go so far as to say that it's better, but I think it's just a good mindset to never be... I, I think it's probably a better mindset to always be looking for something good in something bad. If you're looking for something bad in something good, then chances are you'll always find it. And let's say you have a movie that is 95% great, mm-hmm. like really wonderful, almost perfect, and then you find that 5%. Chances are if you're looking for that 5%, you're going to focus on it a bit more. And I think this is whether you're a film critic or whatever, if you're looking for the negative, you will find it. And because you were looking for it, you might focus on it more than you normally would. Um, but in the spirit, in the spirit of like not giving someone a pass, you know, I, I think in the broader sense of like, if you go into a film directed by a certain filmmaker that you happen to love, don't, I'd say, don't go in just expecting that you're going to love this too. And to the point where you start ignoring pretty obvious flaws. Yeah. And so I feel like that in a, in a and, broader and that sense, also I think goes that's, the other way. Like yeah. I, I mean, I had to talk myself because I saw and reviewed X Men First Class, and mm-hmm. I have not been a Matthew Vaughn fan in the past. Right. But maybe this isn't a bad example. This isn't a good example because I did end up not liking X Men First Class very much. But there was stuff in it that you really liked. Yeah, but I, I did have to sort of like go th- like brainwash myself going in. And isn't, I mean, that's kind of a glib way of saying it but i you do kind of have to wipe the slate every time you go into a movie as much as you can and i don't think anybody ever totally can right um it's like it's like how caffeine free diet coke has some caffeine in it because it's almost impossible to get it out i'd say that's true and if you're gonna have it you might it's like well there's gonna be some caffeine in it so i might as well have regular caffeine uh caffeinated soda so that it's not disgusting because caffeine free soda is disgusting well is it just the caffeine-free diet soda? Like, because they make... It's hard to find, mm-hmm. but they make caffeine-free versions of regular sodas. I know. I've never had them. I have. And they're not good? No. Okay. No, not at all. Caffeine-free diet, I can only imagine how horrific that must be. At that point, why don't you stop fooling yourself and drink, just drink some water, all right? <laughs> put some of this uh, Kool-Aid shit that I put in my water so that you have a little bit of flavor. But, you know, I, uh, I've come around... I don't drink a lot of regular soda anymore. Mm-hmm. I drink diet at restaurants because most restaurants don't have Coke Zero. Yeah. And at home, I drink Coke Zero because that's my jam. It sure I'm is. All about Coke Zero. 
Like, you were at my house on Sunday for a barbecue. I'm glad you made reference to it, because I was going to, and I thought it'd be inappropriate. Uh, you were at your house... Uh, wait, which thing were you going to make reference to? I was going to say, uh, you were you were really slamming those Coke Zeros on <laughs> Sunday. No, I wasn't going to talk about my, um, my out-of-handedness on Sunday. But, um... You probably, if you looked around the kitchen at all, you probably saw four or five two-liter bottles of Coke Zero in there. I was briefly in your kitchen. I didn't see any. Oh. Well, but I wasn't looking either. Okay. At any given time, I, what I wanted to say is we didn't buy that much Coke Zero for the barbecue. We didn't buy any Coke Zero for the barbecue. No. We generally have about five two-liter bottles of Coke Zero in our kitchen. And, you know, I think... That we ti- cycle through. That's how much we go through in a week. The time may need to come for me to just force myself to pour Coke Zero down my gullet and just not th- want to throw up. Because I, I was here just... one time and I asked if you had a Sprite, because I know you often have Sprite in the house. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed when you opened the fridge that you had Sprite and Sprite Zero. And I was like, oh, you have Sprite Zero? I'd prefer that. You wouldn't let me have a Sprite Zero. Like, you couldn't <laughs> get it through your head. You couldn't accept that I would like a Sprite Zero more than a Sprite. I don't remember that, but it makes me look bad. So... Uh, Okay, so but back to the back to the conversation. I do oh, think okay. that what were we talking about? <laughs> well, I, uh, nuance, eh. um, and then proceed to make a series of completely unnuanced jokes. The uh, I think you do have a certain degree of responsibility as a critic to to try to find something worthwhile and something that is that is terrible. But of course, at the same time, if you find something, but it is only five percent. If a movie's only five percent redeemable, then of course you still you sh- you, I, you're perfectly within your rights to say this thing was good, but it was all for naught. You know, but just- see, I think I still want to get because I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But I want to say that what I've come to find about writing reviews is I feel the other side is just as true. Like I feel like I, um, I don't want to forgive a flaw in a movie that is otherwise great because then. I lose some credibility or like I've yeah, given up you, my perspective. I think if you ignore it and act like it's just not there, then, then you do look like you're blind. You know, mm-hmm. as we, as, as we know, like my favorite movie of last year was black Swan far from a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Like it, it has, especially from uh, at a script level, it's got some flaws, like a lot of really obvious writing. And I will be the first to acknowledge that, especially because bad writing has ruined movies for me in the past. But for some reason, this kind of movie managed, and the way it was directed and the well, way it was acted, managed to transcend that, but it's definitely there. So this gets into something that I think deserves its own topic someday, mm-hmm. and I'll say that and then we'll move on, I think. Um, but, and I haven't seen Black Swan, but I'm guessing this is how you judge it. Uh, okay, I talked about how Project Nim is in my top five of the, mm-hmm. of the year so far, and the future... Is also my top five above Project Nim, mm-hmm. by the way. Now, Project Nim has fewer flaws as a film, mm-hmm. but the future, despite its flaws, maybe aims higher, or is about more, or is just more ambitious. Or uh, for some reason, and again, just without even apart from Project Nim, of Miranda July's two films. I think the future has more flaws than me and you and everyone we know, mm-hmm. but because the future is so ambitious, it get. It, I think it's. I, I like it more yeah. uh, than I did me and you and everyone we know. And I feel like that's a topic someday we could we should talk about the sort of perfection and so. ex- execution. Although I guess it goes back to the uh, 
crash versus content thing, but I think just not really. Of- there's there's a certain degree of like audacity mm-hmm. that I have that I have no choice but to respect, and that this, will play a role. Let's let's get into it because that is the perfect way to get into <laughs> Mel Gibson's uh, Um Like we said, only four films, and the one, the first one is one that I frankly have not seen in a long time. But I feel like I watched it a lot when I was young. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So I feel somewhat qualified. Well, I watched it earlier to. today on YouTube, and you folks, you can do it too. Well, now that you've said this to all the millions of listeners that we have, someone is going to tell YouTube and they're going to pull it down. Oh. Well, at least I got in while the getting was good. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a man without a face um, mm-hmm. from what year? 93. 1993. Yeah. Um, Mel Gibson, as he will in his first two films, mm-hmm. plays the lead role. Yes. The titular role. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess he's sort of the lead. It's really... It's, but he is the titular role. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I didn't say... No, but I didn't say he was the lead. I said no, he was the titular role. I know, but you said lead, and then you, you corrected yourself, so I want to make sh- I want to make it clear. He's not really the lead. Wait, did I actually say the word lead? You started to, yeah. Okay. And then I think you corrected yourself. All right. So we, can, just, ro- I, we can roll the tape back. I corrected myself before I even realized I'd made a mistake. That's how fast I am. Okay, we've, uh, we went back and listened to the tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> we didn't actually do that. I just had and a pause. I, I apologize for all that other stuff I said that I didn't remember saying. <laughs> I want to apologize to, you know... Uh, Drinkers the, of regular soda. And, and um, all those things I said about the U.S. women's soccer team. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I'm not sorry for that. Because you were right on the money. No, Nobody you, cares about women's soccer. We all know it. But people cared this time around. Did they? Because they made it to the finals. Oh. They lost to Japan. Okay. In the in the World Cup. I'm it not actually... Like three weeks I'm ago. not actually... I'm not actually against women's soccer. I don't care about any sports. But I feel like you have a Twitter account, right? Uh yes. So anybody I, I who tweet uh, anybody who tweets about sports I don't follow. <laughs> I'm a, I'm sometimes in awe and sometimes in envy of your ability to not be caught up in what's going on. Uh in what? Cuz I could talk debt crisis right and left okay. cuz I'm obsessed with it. But it's just like I remember when like you were only half aware of the whole Charlie Sheen thing when it was ha- while it was happening. Yes, I'm pleased with myself for that. I feel like I wish I could not be a part of it, but I listen to these podcasts and I follow these people on Twitter. Like I can't not know about it. I'm excited that I don't. It's I, I, no, I, I was aware. Of it. I was vaguely aware of it. Um, I wish I had been more aware of it because it's it's always frustrating. I remember a friend of the show, Mike Schmidt, was talking about how his. His uh, one-man show is called Success is Not an Option, mm-hmm. and then Charlie Sheen comes along and and goes uh, and starts saying, like, failure is not an option or mm-hmm. something like that. So suddenly, now, of course, failure is not an option is the phrase. Success is not an option is a variation on the phrase that is funny. So that's fine. Right. Except now it looks like he's directly referencing right. Charlie Sheen. And in the same way, the whole winning thing, mm-hmm. well, like... I've been, ever since, oddly enough, I think I picked this up from uh, Besho and WFMU, uh, just saying something, uh, saying something's a win or, uh-huh. or a W. <laughs> um, I've been saying that for a few years, and then suddenly this winning thing comes along, and I'm like, oh, I guess i got to stop saying there's a win, <laughs> otherwise people think I'm quoting Charlie Sheen, which admittedly is not very much like me. 
This always happens. We get into the topic for about two minutes, and then we go veering off in what couldn't be... You know what we do? Okay, what do we do? We ease into the topic. Is that what we we've, do? We've dipped our toes we in. We're, our- we're testing the water. <laughs> and we find it to be too intense. And we, no, we, will, we will get into the topic. No question about it, yeah. All right, so the man without a face, what is it about? You watch that. Give us a quick uh, plot summary without too many... Spoilers. Okay. Uh, so Nick Stahl plays uh, this uh, young kid living in a uh, small town, and he lives with his mom and his two half-sisters. And he's kind of troubled. Uh, he has problems with authority. He's not doing really great in school. He doesn't really get along with his family. Uh, although, incidentally, I find the family dynamics in the film to be really interesting because they're surprisingly nuanced. Like, the family's not very, dysfun- uh, not very functional, but they don't mm-hmm. fit into the stereotype of a dysfunctional family. Like, you see that the characters want to care about each other, and in some cases do, but sometimes can't stop themselves from being harsh and that sort of thing. It's, the dynamic there is very interesting. But anyway, so he – and he, I don't think he ever knew his father. Um, no, I think he did know his father, but his father, uh, like, died at, when he was very young, and so – and I think his father was like a pilot or something like that. I I don't totally remember because I was watching the first part of it, I believe, at 6 a.m. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, today, slash, whatever. Um, but, uh, and so he, he decides he wants to go to the same school that his father went to. But, he, you know, he's not a good student and mm-hmm. he needs to test uh, well to get into it. And there's this guy, a man with, here's the thing, he has a face. He has half a face. The other face is horribly scarred from what we come to realize was a car accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And the guy is uh, sort of a... He's kind of reclusive. He sort of keeps to himself. There's rumors going on about like, oh, this guy, you know, the kind of rumors that I think happen mostly in movies. Um, Parodied very well in the Tom Waits song, What's He Building in There? Uh Uh-huh. Uh, just like, I bet he spent a little time in jail. I think he killed his wife. Oh, I hear he uh, killed his boyfriend. Stuff like that. Uh, and and so through a, a series of events, the young boy manages to meet this guy. And it turns out that this guy was a, was a teacher. He's not anymore, but he used to be. And, and so he agrees to tutor the young kid with some as one would expect some like unconventional methods like i want you to dig a hole and stuff like that it's right. very strange but um and so of course the true the two grow uh closer and it very much becomes a father son sort of relationship um and the town does not really understand that and they think that it, because there's so many rumors circulating around about this guy already they think that perhaps he has been uh sexually abusing the kid and that sort of thing and so um so I'm not sure how much more detail to, to go into. No, that's, 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 he, that's, he has not been sexually abusing the kid. Right. That's not like a mystery in the movie. That, right. That's, yeah, it's clear. It's more of a mystery in the book, though, apparently. Oh. And I think it's notable right now to discuss the fact that in the book, there is a scene that very, very strongly suggests that the that Mel Gibson's character, the character's name is uh, Justin McCloud, has actually molested at least once the kid. Uh-huh. It doesn't come out and say it, but it is strongly implied. And Mel Gibson, when it came time to, he didn't he didn't write it, but I'm sure he had his, you know, he had input into the script. Um, 
he did not want that in there. Uh, he would much rather be. He he was fine with people thinking it happened, but in in the uh, you know the townspeople thinking it happened. But as far as we the viewers, he wanted us to definitely know that this did that this did not happen. Um, and but, I think yeah. that's the way. I, I think if you look at Mel Gibson's four films, Man Without a Face, Braveheart, The Passion of the Christ, and Apocalypto, mm-hmm. Man Without a Face does seem like the odd one out in a lot of ways. You but know what? It has, okay, go ahead. Um, there's something you'll see, uh, I mean, most notably in Passion of the Christ, but in all his films, noble characters suffering slings and arrows, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often that's uh, both in the lead characters and in other multiple other people in the movie. That's It's more than just people casting aspersions or, you know, having a giving someone a black eye like people mm-hmm. are physically mutilated and i think that this is good this comes to um a sort of there's certain i mean uh, we can't overlook the fact that he's a cat that mel gibson is a catholic and there's right. these catholic ideas of like earthly penance and suffering but i think he has as a director as an auteur this obsession with the idea of the body being broken but the soul remaining intact mm-hmm uh, and reigning noble, and so I think that's the main way that this ties into his other work thematically. Very much so. There's there's martyrdom in pretty much all four. Some of it very directly, of course, like in Passion of the Christ mm-hmm. and Braveheart, and then some of it more symbolic. And in Man Without a Face, as uh, as the townspeople start to as the rumors start to grow, um, the townspeople sort of give Mel Gibson's character a choice, which is. You can either never see this kid again. I'm, I'm spoiling the end. I'm sorry. You can either never see this kid again and never write to him or anything like that. Just cut yourself off completely or you can refuse to do that. You're probably not going to see him anyway, but we'll have to have a trial. We're going to, you know, we're going okay, to And ask. you are spoiling so people could, should skip a few minutes if they don't want to if you don't, Yeah, sure. Movie's eighteen years old, but that's that's fine. But it's, it's also not the kind of movie that. Yeah, it's not Braveheart, which a lot of people have seen. At this but no, point. I just mean it's not the like. I think Man Without a Face is worth watching, whether you know the end or not. It is very much so. Actually, um, I'm not saying it's a great movie, mm-hmm. but I think. Um, Mel Gibson. We I, maybe we should have this sort of thesis statement. I talked about his main theme here, mm-hmm. but I also uh, want to make it clear that, uh, despite who he is as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite the fact that he's an actor turned director who cast himself in a couple of roles, um, these aren't uh, these aren't shallow movies. They're not vanity projects. Like when I said he was an auteur, he really is. Yeah. Even if some of his viewpoints <laughs> that we've heard in mm-hmm. recorded conversations or comments to female police officers. Yeah. Um, do come through in his movies, and we'll talk about that more in the next the next two, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's 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 a real he's the real deal. He's mm-hmm. he's like a Clint Eastwood. He's like the type of yeah. He's an actor turned director who actually really does stand on his own as a director. Yeah, I mean, I think I, even if you don't I, like his films, you kind of have much, to see that he's an auteur. You have to see it. He's not like. With all due respect to Robert Redford, he's he's more Clint Eastwood than Robert Redford. Yeah. Like a re- a real director who, if he wanted to, could quit acting 
and just direct. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, I don't think Hollywood's going to let him do much these days. But um, yeah, I don't think I'm going to let him do anything. But like that aside, let's say that none of that had happened. He could just be a director, and he'd probably be one of the most. He is one of the most fascinating directors of who you know that I've ever seen. Like he's really interesting. And so, uh, but anyway, so uh, so the townspeople give him a choice: either don't see the kid, or you will. You know, either agree to not see the kid or don't agree. There will be a big trial. We're going to grill the, you know, the kid's going to be grilled. And of course, there's no choice at all. He loves this kid in a platonic way, but, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly in a fatherly way. He loves the kid and he wants what's best for the kid. And the kid's had enough troubles already in his life. So he opts not to do it. And that is in itself martyrdom. Like that is him taking the bullet. Because it's entirely possible that through the trial period, he will be exonerated and everything will be fine. But the process of that will be so arduous and there will be so many more rumors now swirling around the kid that maybe he lied. Maybe he actually was involved in this relationship and the kid's life could possibly be ruined even if everyone is found to be uh, innocent. Because you you can't shake rumors as the character knows better than anybody. And so... So he sort of, you know, he falls on the sword and and the kid has a very successful life. And it's sure, that he I, goes on to become John Connor. He sure does. <laughs> and that yellow bastard. Oh, you I haven't never seen Sin City. No, I'm not, um, I'm not seeing that. But <laughs> there <laughs> Didn't are, we just talk about nuance? <laughs> for, no, there are, I've not seen Sin City. There are, there are aspects of Sin, Sin City that I think... Or Sim City. Man, that's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interactive film where you just... It's kind of boring, though. Not, no real plot. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so, yeah, it, it's interesting because I'm so happy uh, at the... Uh, a lot of it at the prodding of Jason... Uh, front of the show, Jason Eakin. Uh, he was on the show last week. Yes. People know who he is. Indeed. Uh, he was saying, like, you should try to watch Man Without a Face again. And I remembered it, I remembered it well enough to actually talk about how it fits in with his, with his films. But so specifically, like, it really, once, once you watch it, having seen the others, you see, like, oh, he was already establishing thematically what he was going to spend the rest of his directorial career exploring. And so... The idea of martyrdom, the idea of a clear-cut good and evil, right and wrong. Mm-hmm. The good is good, which is why, of course, he had to remove that thing from the book. He can't have any possibility. The character can be flawed, but at his core, there is something good, and he's going to have to pay for it. But it's a noble cause. And in that sense, I mean, of course, he's a Catholic, and wh- and there is nothing more. In In many ways... It was inevitable that he was going to make a story about Jesus Mm -hmm. because that's sort of what it's clearly what he wanted to do with the first two. Well, yeah, but I was going to say before he made a story about Jesus, he went ahead and made a story about Jesus. It was called Braveheart. (laughs) Um, And let's let's get into that. I haven't seen that that in a while, so I'll let you take. I haven't seen it in a while either, but I've also seen it a number of times. And you know, every time I watch it, I actually like it a little less. I loved it like when I was in high school. Because um, it is very uh, sweeping and, and and epic, you know, and he he certainly has rousing. A, it's a rousing film uh, in his yeah, in, but in his first two films especially, he he has a very uh, theatrical um, and um, a sort of lush mise en scène mm-hmm. in a lot of his films uh, or in a lot of these scenes in the first two films, rather. Um, and you know. More and more, when I watch Braveheart, the fact that it's so convinced of its own import um, gets to me a little. Like it, mm-hmm. it seems forced, you know, um, and it seems less. 
it's less immediate and less felt than certainly Apocalypto, which is mm. uh, Mel Gibson's best film and one of the best films of the last decade. I agree. And um, very immediate. <laughs> I, I think actually, that might be like one of the driving words yeah, of Apocalypto is in the immediacy. Yeah. To the point where uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Right. Um, yeah. Well, here's oddly enough, here's, I never got a sense of, uh, I never felt like Braveheart was forced because forced means that he is trying to, I, in my mind, uh, when a work of art is forced, especially regarding, its attitude towards its events, you almost get the feeling it's trying to convince itself instead of trying to convince the audience. I think he's absolutely convinced of the righteousness of, of William Wallace and the importance but, of the events. Yeah, it's. I think once the movie really gets going and William Wallace really starts leading the people, it becomes a better movie. But mm-hmm. I think earlier when he's a kid... Um, like the scene where he goes back into the like town sort of meeting hall or whatever and everyone's been hung. Do you remember that part? It's yes. very early on. Um it's so like artfully staged, like and almost pretty looking that yeah. you that it's kind of like it just seems like it's uh, filling off a checklist. Which is the same um with the part where and I'm gonna spoil Braveheart here, <laughs> um yeah. when his wife is killed. Mm-hmm. Now that's Oh, well, it also kind of feels like it's part of a checklist. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a sadism to some of Mel Gibson's work um, <laughs> that uh, definitely comes through there. Like that's that almost bothers me, bothers me in another way. That it's maybe just it's almost just too cruel. Uh, well, and it's it's so appropriate that we're talking about Mel Gibson a week after we discussed what is and isn't exploitative Mm -hmm. because of course his attitude towards violence and towards i mean literally even in his mentor protege debut feature there's physical mutilation the character has been badly burned and his face Mm -hmm. is is disgusting you know disgusting might be a little mean but um it's not a real person that's true that's true (laughs) screw that guy i bet he did touch that kid so uh yeah it's and with braveheart more so than than other movies that are kind of big and epic and very violent, he does seem to... The violence seems... The only phrase I can think of is lovely, lovingly rendered. Mm-hmm. Um, as and But not in a way that's like, this is amazing, but almost as if like... I almost wonder if he approaches it almost like a painting. Like, I want to have every detail out there where people can see it. Uh, and I, I don't want to... Sc- skimp on anything so everything has to be just right and i he really and to his credit he's always really great at creating a world um yeah, but, but the but same I, instinct I, that he, creates he's, he's gotten better i mean this is i think one of the things uh you know obviously everything that has gone on with him in the press is is awful and the human part of me is kind of frankly glad that he will likely be out of out of work for some time to come but the film lover in me is kind of sad because he keeps getting better. Like each of his uh, Passion of the Christ, we'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of but Apocalypto is his best film, and he's gotten he's grown as a filmmaker as he has freed himself from sort of the trappings of big budget studio films. And that's the my, the problem with Braveheart, especially the early part, setting up mm-hmm. the uh, the boyhood story and the first, you know, the, his his wife and the their courtship mm-hmm. is that it feels if it weren't for the fact that it's Scotland in the fifteen hundreds or sixteen hundreds, I can't remember. Um, 
it feels like Frank Capra, but it feels like cut-rate Frank Capra, especially the courtship stuff, like, is just too... Well, and it goes back to what we what we were talking about, and I think it really is established with Braveheart, although, uh, you know, it's in there uh, in Man Without a Face, is that he's not really interested in shades of gray. He's interested in black and white, and that Im- that is literally with everything. This character is good, this character is evil. This character is likable, this character is not. And the best way to make such a character seem unlikable is for them to kill a likable character. And just, and everything is very this or that. And every once in a while, you'll find like an evil character who has a moment of goodness. Uh huh. Only to find out that that moment of goodness is only like some sort of. It's like a bait and switch. It's like, oh, he's It's like, oh, you think he's good? I'm sorry. He's more evil than you thought. Um, and so, like. So of course, like he's not interested in, in I think flesh and blood characters that you could meet. You know, he's, but he's interested, interested in the flesh and the blood of well, characters. <laughs> being well done, all over the place. I almost feel like we should end the episode. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> he's interested in in the ideas of characters, characters as as concepts and as uh, repre- uh, representations of something. Like this character is the representation of strong integrity and good and uh, strength integrity and and what is inherently good and then of course his wife is innocence and of course innocence dies because as we see the representation of evil has come along and will and oppression and will do that like yeah. the the and i think he act, he gets good performances from his actors but so i think in many ways he might be an actor's director except that it, it it's a good thing that he is because otherwise like it would just seem so surprisingly shallow in the way that he explores things. Um, well, uh, again, because he's an awful person, I don't want to do this without talking about some of the more uncomfortable parts of his belief system that come into play. And uh, one thing about Braveheart that has bothered me the more and more that I see it is um, the king's son being gay. Yeah. It's... Um, did that bother you the first time you saw it? I don't think I knew enough for it to bother me. Oddly enough, it got me immediately. Like, I saw it when I was, like, 16. Like, it clearly he is weak. Yeah. Because he's gay. Right. His lover is... Uh, Caddy. But also, in, in the filmmaker's eyes, he is a worthless person. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the... Just... Uh, viscerally upsetting death of the lover is not it's it's a triumphant moment for the king now obviously he's a bad person yeah but i feel like the film takes a little joy in this in this preening you know uh gay guy getting thrown out of a window it absolutely does like and that yeah I i will say that while when i was when i first saw it i was probably uh too young to really get how ugly the homophobia was mm-hmm. that death did bother me from the beginning okay. because it's it's really violent uh, I in think, a way that i mean not that it, it's not as gory maybe as some of the other deaths in the film but, but the attitude about it yeah is is really offensive because it's just like because at, uh longshanks played i think actually quite brilliantly by patrick mcguin mm-hmm. I, I really like what he does with that character um, sort of gleefully evil, which if 
if this is the character you're given, the, <laughs> written the way he is, I guess this is how you have to play him. Right. And so, uh, but he is evil, and you do hate him. Now, admittedly, you love to hate him, but you do hate him, and he does terrible things. But in that moment, I do feel like the film is saying, like, well, he's not all bad. <laughs> right, it, as if to say, because it's a film that, okay. I've mentioned this before, and this is very, this is somewhat tangential to what we've been talking about, except that, okay. And for those that get tired of hearing me talk about my Christianity, I'm sorry, this is probably something more for my other show. However, and also, it, this is probably not the episode for you. Yeah, that's true. Don't worry. You'll hear me distance myself from passion of the Christ later. So, uh, in the modern, in, in the modern Christian church, specifically, uh, in the, in like the, there's sort of a, a, a male movement, you know, you, you hear about like promise keepers. Um, is that still a thing? Promise keepers? I don't think it's as big as it was like maybe 10, 15 years ago, but I think, I think, I think they're still around. And so, but you know what I mean? Like just this idea of like really embracing what it means to be a man. And that's all well and good when it comes to like embracing responsibility. That's, you know, that's fine. Except that some people, uh, get the idea of being a man and, and a deeper concept of masculinity. They get that mixed up with cultural ideas of masculinity and a movie that they frequent. There's a, a writer who I kind of like, I don't love every once in a while. He'll write something. I'm like, Oh, I really like that. But his name is John Eldridge. And he, ev- he invokes William Wallace specifically in Braveheart constantly. And he talks about like, actually for like his birthday, his wife like bought him like a replica of like William Wallace's sword. Like he's so, <laughs> he is so, he so buys into that idea of masculinity. And I think a lot of people do Christian or otherwise, but I, I naturally have this because of what it has wrought in the Christian world in part of the Christian world. Uh, I'm very, I find myself resistant to Braveheart, and I feel like that attitude is like, hey, as bad as Longshanks is, at least he's not one of these over here, one of these uh, preening Nancy boys. Right. Like, it's a film that is, I mean, it's got freaking Brendan Gleeson and Brian Cox <laughs> and Mel Gibson, and, you know, it's got all these people just being men, real men, and look at these guys over here acting like girls. Get rid of them. He's not going to kill his own son. But he will kill the guy who's turning his son gay. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, <laughs> and it's and it does seem to it, there's a homophobia there, but there's also this, which of course is terrible in itself. See, but there's also this. But there's also this idea of what masculinity really is, what a real man is, and I and I'm not sure if I'd say that's that's at, I don't think that's as ugly as the homophobia, but I think it can also be. I think it can be damaging. Oh, I've always liked, and I, Mel Gibson won't like this anti-Semite that he is, but I've always <laughs> liked the idea of being a mensch more than the, the idea of being macho. Because mm-hmm. I feel like macho is like the, uh, I don't know, there's almost there's, there's a vanity to it, I think, you know? Very much so. Uh, there's a, a certain a, preening, a preening of yeah. it in their own way, whereas being, the connotation of being a mensch is just sort of about being reliable and personally yeah. responsible and compassionate handling your business is one yeah. way of phrasing it yeah. <laughs> yeah and having a bit of a backbone i think yeah and that's, oh standing and, and these are all good things and these are all things that william wallace has too very much but it so. gets into this other thing that's um 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, t- I joked last week about MMA and, like, the homoeroticism of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that it's not the homoeroticism specifically that makes me uncomfortable, but just the idea of people touching. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is, I mean, uh, you know, it, people who hold William Wallace up as a, uh, uh, specifically William Wallace, the character in Braveheart, mm-hmm. um, as a symbol of masculinity, I think they need to look at how much they like the idea of two sweaty muscular masses of men clashing into each other you know in loincloths i think it's pretty hot but that's me <laughs> um you know just for artistically hot is what i meant to say um and that's the i, I don't mean to i don't mean to just bash braveheart but i mean we were talking oh, that part where they all moon the english like that's pretty homoerotic yeah what <laughs> i was gonna make a joke that i'm not going to okay. now uh but yeah, I don't. I don't want to make it seem like I'm like I only see the negative of Braveheart. There are a lot of elements that I like in it. Yeah. But and that's the thing is like Mel Gibson being the man that he is now, which is to say the man that we all know him to be. It does cause one to go back and uh-huh. look and give even movies like Braveheart and, and uh, Man Without a Face give it a second look and look for the things there. Man Without a Face. There is a rather in depth sequence where he uh, where he acts out. The famous monologue in oh, Merchant of right. Venice. Yeah. And in watching it, I was like, interesting. Knowing what I know now, I find myself wondering, I don't know, what, like, where he himself, well, yeah, the character who, is playing I mean, I, Shylock. I, I, I imagine most people know the speech, but for those who don't, it's the speech of the Shylock saying mm-hmm. that, like, saying a Jew is a person, too. Right. Um, and I think that, um, well, Catholics like to torture themselves for one thing um and i think there's something to the fact that mel gibson had to be super drunk before he said all that anti-semitic stuff because Mm -hmm. i do think that he is not entirely comfortable with himself as an anti-semite i think he is that's to his credit i guess i don't (laughs) i don't know i don't don't mean it to be yeah not as much to his credit as not being an anti-semite but i think he is aware enough to know that it's... I need to hide this? He at least needs to hide it, or maybe even that he wishes he didn't feel that way. But, I mean, mm. uh, this will get me into sort of bleeding heart liberal territory, but I don't oh, know good. if you know anything about his father. Like, uh, you know... His, his father's pretty rough, right? I don't remember the details. His father is, like, the old pre-Vatican II Catholic who believes that the reforms of this 1960s... Uh, I don't know if people know Vatican II. Like, in the 1960s, I can't remember. I don't, I'm not a religious historian. Mm-hmm. But basically, they got together, and they made a bunch of changes. Um, like, um, from simple things like... Uh, um, before 1960, it was against Catholic rule to be cremated when you were buried, when you died. Hmm. Now you can be cremated. But it's also bigger things like masses aren't in Latin anymore. And... Uh, it's all kinds of stuff, and I feel like um, that's a step in the right direction. B- but there are still, in fact, I have family members, extended family members, not immediate mm-hmm. family members, who go to Latin mass every week. Uh, Do they speak Latin? No, no. But this is this mindset, and that's this is who Mel Gibson's father was. This old school, um, anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. uh, very much believed that. Um, the Jews killed Jesus. Like this wasn't like some like uh, long-standing out of 
touch in joke or whatever it is now when people when people say it now it's like can you believe people used to think that yeah yeah but people there are still people who think that uh and mel gibson's dad is one of them and mm. so i feel like um i don't want to make excuses for mel gibson but i right. do think it's interesting that he is I think he got a lot of his beliefs because of where he come, came from. No. And I also think that he is aware enough of the world to be, um, to struggle with them. Yeah, like, there's this thing that's ingrained in him, and I'm sure he wishes he didn't have it. But that doesn't make it sound like, I don't yeah, mean to say it's not his fault, because, of course, when you're an adult, then you have choices to make, yeah. even philosophically. Yeah. But the things we've heard of that he said aren't things that he's calmly stated his fact he's either had to be drunk or super angry yeah for them to come out uh and i feel like it's because his inhibitions are down and he again i'm not making excuses for him it, you know right and it does it sort of i remember th- you and i had a conversation about this when it when it happened um and i remember the first thing that i got and I, we've said it already a couple of times in the last couple of minutes i don't want to say this excuses him right but the idea of the i the ideas of his father spewing out of him in moments of anger, drunkenness, and weakness, it, it had a very Russell, like Russell Banks affliction quality uh-huh. to it, which uh, made him see, in that moment, I, like, I certainly didn't have sympathy for him, but I found him sad. Yeah. And uh, angering, certainly, but very sad and kind of almost pathetic. Yeah. And I realized those are words that, imply a certain degree of sympathy and ex- and excuse actions but just i don't know that's there's a lot there's a lot going on there and i think to go to any extreme in the way you characterize mel gibson which is to say well clearly he's just a full-fledged anti-semite which he might be mm-hmm. but it's underneath there's it's a it's this deep kind of thing that he does seem to not to wish he wasn't and not want or to at be. least not want people to know about him right yeah and then the but then the flip side is like it's like well you know people say weird stuff when they're drunk it's like i don't know yeah. i've known some drunk people they I mean, don't say that probably never been really drunk right? no i haven't i have okay and i don't say stuff that i don't mean yeah i mean i might be a little like uh um, what's the word I'm looking for? Hyperbolic about how much I love this Black Sabbath record that's on the stereo yeah, ex- right now. Exaggerated. <laughs> and, and like, yeah, maybe exaggerated. Yeah. But I'm not going to just start saying these awful, yeah. you know, and racist of course, or anti-Semitic or sexist things. The exaggerated version for Mel Gibson is that he, in actuality, of course, he only believes that Jews start some of the wars, <laughs> not all of them. He's like, you know what? That was... <laughs> I'd had some... I had a little bit to drink. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> but uh, anyway, oh, the, speaking of funny, like and I think I did say this before, probably not on the podcast, but to you, like the things that Mel Gibson says <laughs> when he's drunk or when he's angry, if they weren't real, mm-hmm. if it wasn't a person actually talking to another human being like this, if this was a character that was written, there's some hilarious turns of phrase. Oh yeah, like him calling the cop sugar tits. <laughs> <laughs> It is funny. You feel bad laughing at it because he was really denigrating another person. Yeah, it's horrible. But like, but it, wh- what's the what's the thing from the machine where or the answering machine or something? Like, no, was it an answering machine or did she record the call? She recorded the call. Okay. She was on the call. And it's like, was it like get rid of him? Why don't you? <laughs> you what was that? I'm sorry that we're laughing at this. It's really quite terrible. <laughs> but if you, but yeah, why but don't, I don't you? Uh, but I don't remember it. What is it? I think he's talking about 
her breast implants or something? Oh, that's right. And, she, and he says, yeah, get rid of them, why don't you? <laughs> and it's like, you know, I don't... It's like, it's it's unfortunate that he was talking to her that way. It's really <laughs> quite Jonah terrible. Jameson. It does have that kind of... It's, it's got a nice old-timey quality. Yeah. Um, All right. Back to Braveheart. Yes. Um, and we should wrap up Braveheart. But, yeah, we haven't really talked about the second half of the film uh, that much. Um, and the actual battles and the violence and then of course the the martyrdom at the mm-hmm. end which is um up there with like grant reno for completely unsubtle uses of like yeah uh the christ pose i guess is that what it's called when you would is that what you would call it the christ pose like i guess like what you know what i'm talking about laying on your back yeah with your arms out like like you're on the cross yeah there's gotta be a name for it it happens the, so often probably yeah I'm not sure if he was a... I don't know if I go so far as to say it's a pose that okay. he was doing. Um, the tableau? Like, hey, guys, check this out. Um, I don't think it was that. Vogue. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's... It's in the, in the second half where the film, like, I think picks up steam as sort of um, pure visceral filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, once it... Once it gets rolling downhill, you know, um, he Mel Gibson does know how to keep an action scene going, uh, and you know there is a, uh, you know, I guess this does tie into last week too. There's a difference between it's a tiny difference and probably not a distinction to a lot of people, mm. but. Um, a film being incredibly gory because the director or the filmmaker, whoever, thinks that's what the audience wants, or in a film being incredibly gory because that's what the director wants. Mm-hmm. Like, there's like I don't feel like he's being he's being cynically pandering by showing a lot of gore in no, the scenes. I think it gives more than what people want. I yeah, think. and I think he's having a blast. And there yeah. is like I mean, it taps into. We talk about these hidden parts of yourself, just mm-hmm. you know, this, the bloodlust that's hidden in all of us. Like, there's something primal, I think, about... Uh, and maybe, I, again, it's not only knowing what we know about him now, but also having seen Apocalypto, yeah. which is a, probably a masterpiece, um, especially since he probably won't make any more yeah. films for any any time soon. Um, but... Um, you know, there is something very primal about mm-hmm. Apocalypto. That's why there's so many animals in the movie, you know, yeah. um, and characters named after animals and stuff like that. Uh, and and you feel the roots of that in those battles in, in Braveheart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's... I feel I feel like we've we've like really been ragging on Braveheart. There's a it is it's it's an intensely watchable movie. Um, I don't find it remarkably challenging, except of course in certain moments to watch. Uh-huh. Um, but he, it really is like from a filmmaking standpoint, like a huge leap forward as far as style. And it is interesting when he chooses not to show violence or show gore. Mm-hmm. Like for example, it, when I first watched it again, I was, I was, I was fairly young and it took me a moment to realize his characters having his intestines pull out, pulled out. Oh, right. Like it took me a moment to realize that. And then I remembered back to the, the little, goofy fun theatrical demonstration with the uh the dwarf uh-huh. um and i remember being like oh okay that's that's what is happening for real now and i remember being being uh in retrospect when i when i think back um 
being actually kind of impressed that he chose not to show See, it. See, but I think that's... I think him not showing it is him still being a little too tied to the sort of um, mainstream studio rules. I think. Oh, if, maybe. I think if Mel Gibson today made Braveheart, they would absolutely show his intestines. Hmm. Do you think... At the same time, like, I do think... Well, man... What I was about to say probably does is not correct because I was because I was like because I, I you know I was sort of thinking out loud and I was like yeah but I don't know if he would if he would like let that ha- you know allow that to be shown with his main characters and I was like Passion of the Christ right never mind um, well let's get into Passion of the Christ okay um, I mean oh I will say actually real quick I'm sorry uh, as as black and white as Braveheart is it should be noted that like my favorite character in it is Robert the Bruce, played by Angus McFadgen, who I think the performance is good and also the character is good because he finds himself doing bad things and being kind of a the tool of bad people, but he so badly wants to do the right thing. And I mm-hmm. feel like, I feel like uh, in him, Mel Gibson sort of, I wouldn't say lucked into it, but he, he realized something that I think is, is very important in almost any movie that you need a sort of audience surrogate somebody who we can sort of latch onto because they're the mo- they're the closest to us like this idea of like well I want to fight I want to fight the powers that be I have no idea how but I'm inspired by this guy and that's that might be enough mm-hmm. and in that sense I feel like that's what that character is and I think he's played very well and I really like that he's in the film because it would have been easy to not have him be there yeah but you need someone who is on the wrong side being inspired by the insurgent this will absolutely get us into um uh into passion of the christ because i feel like yes robert the bruce is like an audience surrogate in those ways but i do feel like most people are encouraged to imagine themselves in the role of william wallace oh absolutely um I don't know, I don't think that, even though William Wallace is the Jesus character, mm-hmm. he doesn't do that with Jesus. Like, you're not supposed to, I mean, I, I don't know, do you agree? Do, do you think people imagine themselves as Jesus when they watch no, Passion of the all. Christ? No, And if they actually, did, would that be sacrilegious or blasphemous? I'm not sure what the word is. Blasphemous, right? Is that the word? Uh, I don't know. I don't usually... I don't think in those terms, but probably blasphemous is is it? Yes. Um, I forget. There's a difference between blasphemy and heresy. Heresy yeah. is like saying God doesn't exist, whereas blasphemy is saying bad things about God in super broad terms. But I think that's how it works. And I think heresy is actually saying stuff like God is evil, like saying things that are like wrong about God. Okay. And yeah, speaking ill of God who you acknowledge to be good is, I think, blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Saying things that are incorrect. But also imagining yourself as being... Cause you're that might to, fit both, actually. You're supposed now to that I strive, think right, to be yeah. like Jesus. Mm-hmm. But Maybe imagining or assuming that you already are yeah. would be blasphemous, right? I would say so, yes. Okay. Um, I don't know. You're the, you grew up Catholic. You, I feel like you would know these things better than me. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, we do spend a lot more time feeling bad about shit than you people do. I mean, I feel bad about things, but I, I always thought it was just a function of me. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, your guy's big thing is making sure that you're all set 
for when the apocalypse comes, right? That's kind of the big thing for the... Uh, Is it? For, for the... It's for some. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess that's just how I've always defined, defined Protestants. Really? <laughs> Whereas Catholics are more about the here and now and the suffering and feeling bad and guilty. The here and now, and, and, and by and the now. way, all the bad you did then. Yeah. Um, well, that's good now that we're all... No, I, I I think there is very much in in certain uh, Protestant uh, sects you will find um, people that are very very concerned about uh, the end times as they mm-hmm. are called, and you'll find the vast majority of Christian films are about that because yeah. it's sort of sci-fi. And now we like, hey, we can make a movie just like uh, just like Independence Day. No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> you don't have the money, and you don't have the nuance. I just said Independence Day was nuanced, yeah. and compared to those movies, it is. Yeah, um, you don't have you don't have Bill Pullman. No, you got a whole cast full of Randy Quaid's, <laughs> and not the good Brokeback Mountain Randy Quaid. No, you've got the Gary Busey Randy Quaid, <laughs> played here by Gary Busey. So <clears throat> that was a tangent. Um, so into Passion of the Christ, then? Yeah, now, uh, okay. I, I don't think. I think you're right. I think um, Braveheart gives us someone that we, not merely that we aspire to be, but that we can kind of be like, yeah. I think I could be like him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty badass. Um, whereas, and, and I do think that might be, I think that might be by design. Passion of the Christ, I don't think there's any audience surrogacy <laughs> in, uh, in the character of Jesus. In fact, and this might be one of the reasons that I, I don't know, this might be why I respond much more to the, uh, peripheral characters in Passion of the Christ is because I think there's there's uh, audience surrogates all over that movie and mm-hmm. it's everyone except him mm-hmm. even got, the the uh, people torturing him oh yeah and even the the Jews that Mel Gibson would have you believe are responsible for Jesus' death right I think which how do you where do you fall on that because you mean in no, in the in, broad sense or no, in the movie? Because in, in the movie, there was a thing, the script came out early, and the Jew, like the Jewish Anti-Defamation League said, this is awful, and then I started hearing some advanced words, and it's like, no, that's not really the way it is in the movie. And then I saw the movie, and I was like, yeah, he pretty much blames the Jews. Did, did you feel that? I, you know what? I didn't feel that, part, but, that's, but that might be because, you know, that's my, like... My Sunday school training basically is like, well, it's not their fault. It's our fault. Humanity's fault. Mm-hmm. It would be short-sighted and stupid and incorrect to blame it on these people. Like, yeah, I, in, I instinctively think that, and so I didn't, I didn't see it in the movie. I think correct whether or not I'm a, whether I'm a believer or not. I think mm-hmm. just to, for the philosophy of Christianity to work, that has to be correct. Yeah. But I think there to is... To demonize one group is, yeah, ri- is ridiculous. But I, I think. think there is... Here's what makes it makes it read that way to me. Okay. It's not the way the Jewish uh, characters behave. Mm-hmm. Because if it were just about that, then you could say, yeah. clearly, it's just the way that people behave. It's the way that the Romans react to them. That almost like, the, the Romans are almost like, well, we were going to let them go, but I guess you, you know, vengeful, uh, horned Jewish people yeah. uh, want, him to, want him to suffer, so I guess that's what we're going to have to do. Like, that's what sells it for me, is the fact that the Romans are somehow reasonable in, in the movie. It's sort of like, 
It's sort of like in the new Captain America when the Red Skull is even too evil for the Nazis. <laughs> where where the Romans are like, look, we all know we're evil, right? But seriously, these guys are these guys are intense. <laughs> yeah, so I mean do you see them? I see what like, you mean. that's why it reads that way to me. And also, I mean I hate to put it this way, but like that was the first thing that I retroactively said, okay, I guess I guess these rumors, I get not these rumors. I guess this interpretation had some merit because mm-hmm. I mean I didn't see it, and 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 I re- like the whole time I really was trying to examine myself and be like, why am I not seeing this? Is it because I don't want to see it? Is it because you know, like, why am I not seeing the anti-Semitism there? It's like, but at the same time, I did say like, if someone sees it, I can see how they could see it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, well, when he went on his tire, it's like, I guess, yeah, I guess there it is. Yeah, um, yeah. It's funny thinking back to those days before *Passion of the Christ* came out, and so much of the press was about, uh, or the negative press, I guess, was about Mel Gibson's father. Because at this point, we didn't know that, yeah, that he was going to come oh, what, back at all. What up. a quaint time that was. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, and also, and that's and this is the other the other side is that you hear, of course, I was part of a, ch- I was I was going to a church and. I mean, it was such a cultural thing uh, in the in the whole country, but certainly in Catholic and Protestant churches at the time that you heard every little thing. And it is one, still to this day the highest grossing independent film of all time. Yes, the highest grossing R rated film of all time. Is that true? I think so. Um, maybe that's not true. It's near true though, and the highest grossing foreign language film domestically of all time well that i believe yeah yeah um that's interesting so i, I mean yeah up highest grossing r-rated film because i feel like it's if it's not number one it's at least in the top three so like it was such a big phenomenon and you you know you heard all this stuff uh and one of the things because a lot of people count a lot of uh christians who were big defenders of the film they countered the anti-semitism uh, accusation with like, yeah, but and so I went in. I went into the film. I didn't see it, you know, opening weekend. I think I saw it several weeks after it opened. Um, the uh, the big thing of like, well, you know, the hands that uh, hit the the nail uh-huh. into Christ's uh, wrist is it hands or wrists in the movie? I know that. Uh, I want to say it's wrists in the movie. Okay, because if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong. Like, in actuality, it would have been the wrists because yeah. the nail would have just torn through the hand. Right. But the hand does seem to be the, what everyone Because that's where, like, this, when people have stigmata. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, uh, but anyway, so everyone's like, you know, the hands that uh, hit the, the first nail into the wrist, those are Mel Gibson's, and he, he chose to put have it be his hands to say something about how we all are responsible for putting right. those nails. And so... People would say that as a way of saying, like, well, clearly, since he put himself in that role, he he clearly isn't blaming the Jews. And it's like, well, you didn't see his face. Although, if you did, you'd be like, what the hell? Why is Mel Gibson in this for two seconds? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, that, but that, yeah. That almost getting into get us into talking about the film, apart from the anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk about a couple more, a couple more things. Okay. Because um, you talk about how, like you're not partially not seeing it because of what you already knew or at least what you already taught, what you already felt really right. going in. Um, and that gets to my, one of my main problems with the film 
Because while, while I think that Passion of the Christ is not a good film and is in many ways, in fact, despicable, <laughs> I think it's... It, just in the way that I often say that Michael Bay, how much I, however much I hate him, is an auteur, mm. Passion of the Christ is a huge leap forward from Braveheart in terms oh, yeah. of of him of of Gibson coming into his own as a director and discovering his own voice even if it is not a good film i think if you're studying academically it it's an essential part of his well, filmography from, i mean to use a word that you use a lot from a purely formalist point of view i mean it's leaps and bounds it's just amazing and it goes and it goes to what i was talking about earlier and that like his ability through art direction makeup costume the use of cinematography, literally every aspect, and sound, of course, every aspect of filmmaking, he does such a great job of creating this world and putting us in the middle of it. I don't think there's quite the immediacy that you'll find in Apocalypto, but you definitely feel like you're in the middle of this world. And I've, you know, and this this goes back to, you know, the, the Christian films that I've seen. You know, I've seen... I've seen depictions of Jesus, like really cheap, crappy ones where his hair is way too perfect and stuff like uh-huh. that. I've seen that a lot. And of course, you know, those cheapy productions don't really have the money, but nonetheless, they didn't, you really felt like the the dirt and the heat in Passion of the Christ. Um, well, I can tell you this is, uh, there was um, an episode of Louis, Louis C.K.'s show mm-hmm. um, in the first season that was entirely a flashback to his uh, his Louis as a young as a, like a kid like a seventh grade kid in um, uh, you know parochial Catholic school mm-hmm. um, and Tom Noonan plays a uh, oh you're telling me about yeah this. he's I think he's a doctor by day but he's also a devout Catholic and he comes in to explain to the class in excruciatingly precise detail mm-hmm. exactly what happened to jesus and this goes into again this difference between catholics and protestants like you go into one of your churches and Mm -hmm. there's a cross yeah as a symbol if you go into one of the churches (laughs) i went to there's a cross and then there is a very lifelike and bloody and emaciated and dirty yeah jesus with a horrible expression on his face as one would expect yeah i mean and there's you'll see one of those crucifixes uh, very memorably in the blues brothers when they first come to visit the penguin and yeah there's blood coming from the hands and feet there's Mm -hmm. blood coming from the puncture in his side and there's blood coming from the crown of thorns that's been Mm -hmm. placed on his it's all his head um this is the image of Jesus that I grew up with is from from before I can remember. Right, and of course, the, from a from a Christian point of view, that is an important image to remember: is the idea of like him suffering instead of us, but him merely dying is the beginning. And 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 okay, and here's here's why I don't like the movie, why I don't respond to the movie, um, is that. It focuses, and that's fine. He, Mel Gibson made no bones about, like, he never said, I'm making the life of Jesus. He said, I'm, it's the passion. It's a, yeah. a passion play. And, it and goes that's to, what it's to, about. If I can real quick say, because I started saying it, I just want to okay, finish my ahead. thought on it. Um, this thing about what you bring to the movie is that one of the th- reasons the movie is not entirely successful for me is that, like a Michael Moore film, say, mm-hmm. it already assumes that you feel a certain way about the thing that it's about. Right. 
And the damn and here's the damnedest thing. I do feel that way about the thing <laughs> that it's about. Like I'm I'll throw some Christianese out there. The idea of like a personal relationship with Christ, that literally means that you feel like you know who the person of Christ is. I went into the movie and I feel like I felt like I was watching a stranger. I, I felt like I was watching a guy who, as far as I could tell, didn't do uh, anything really terrible and certainly doesn't seem to deserve the things that are happening to him. But I felt like I didn't know him. I felt like, uh, and I feel like it's because the film starts so late in his life. There's a couple flashbacks here and there about like his his ministry, but they're very short. And mm-hmm. so I really feel like, oh, I'm. It's unfortunate that such bad stuff is happening to this guy. Okay. All right. By well, the way, that's that's the end of that. Real, real quick. Okay. Passion of the Christ is the highest gro- domestically the highest grossing R-rated film of all time by a long shot. Okay. It's with three hundred seventy point seven million, roughly. Number two is The Matrix Reloaded <laughs> with two two hundred eighty one point five. Now you say domestically. What about worldwide? I don't know. I'd, okay. Don't bother looking. Yeah, at it. it's going to take too long. And so the internet's um, not that strong in here. <laughs> and so it sure isn't, man. This is such a freaking time warner. Oh, yeah. And uh, real quick, um, if you've been noticing any problems on the website with um, some infections lately mm-hmm. uh, and warnings, there steps have been taken and that has been uh, resolved. As far as I can tell, this is literally not going to happen it's again. It's resolved once and for all. Yes. It happened three times over the past six months or so. Yeah. And... Um, so an extra step was taken. It cost us a little more money, so if you want to go over to the donate page, we'd By appreciate it. Yes. Um, uh, but it should be done once and for all. Yes. Back to Passion of the Christ. Yeah, and so um, so I, I, I found myself having a hard time, you know, like the... the uh, Excuse me. The idea of an audience surrogate is that it gives you an entry point. And I, as a Christian, felt no entry point into Mm -hmm. the film. Only when you got to see the effect that Christ had on other people, putting the uh, Roman soldier's ear back on, and then then the look of... And then, like, it cuts back to him, and this is... I, I love the shot, where after everybody has left the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldier's still there, astounded at what has happened. His ear has been cut off, and now it's been reattached. And he's and just on the he doesn't say anything. You just the expression on his face and the fact that he's still there, whereas everybody else has left. It implies that his life has been changed, and of course, and in that's and that's the idea. That is where that is the entry point. Is these little characters that we see here and there, and we're only given a, maybe a minute and a half, or you know, two or three minutes with each, and it's like, oh, that's like. Because as a Christian, you feel like you've had that experience to a certain extent. And so you're like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Okay, not you anymore? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, b- back to business, I guess. And um, and so I felt actually surprisingly distant from the film. And I know that uh, there's plenty of Christians, plenty of people that I, uh, I... I know a lot of Christians that are like uh, film fans, and they really love the movie, and I don't fault them that. But for me, I never felt invested... <laughs> In, in the story of the, in this incredibly brutal story of, uh, there's not much story to the movie. Well, I guess, that's yeah, that's kind of why I, I story. like it from again a formalist standpoint. Is mm-hmm. that whereas Braveheart, especially in its first half, but really the whole movie feels like it's hitting these sort of mm-hmm. you know uh, just the pre-planned out like exposition, rising action, right. you know this just hitting all the beats. Um, Passion of the Christ is a more um, I guess a less conventional no. narrative format. 
I remember... Uh, and that the whole thing takes place over... I mean, how, uh, from the beginning of the movie to the end, how much time has actually passed? Well, only a, only a few days. And, of right. course, I mean, it's the idea of, like, Jesus being dead for three days, and you don't really see those three days, but mm-hmm. it ju- the, the film ends right. when he stands up and gets, out and gets out of the tomb. And I feel like that in itself is interesting, because it ends on a note of triumph, but we don't see anything that happens after that. And one could say that, like, well, we don't need to see it. Isn't it enough that he died and now he's not dead? And it's like, that's, yes, that's good, but, like... I don't know. But I think we're getting into here why the film isn't interested in serving um, narrative purposes. Right. It's, and this is why um, I'm fascinated that non-Catholics liked it as much as they did. Mm -hmm. It's sort of about this Catholic reason for being. You know, the term, I remember once when we lived together all these years ago, you asked me what, like, because you had heard the term Catholic guilt a lot. Right. But you asked me, like, what does it really mean? Like, what do they feel guilty about? I know my guilt. (laughs) But this is the Catholic guilt, is that um, we go through our lives with it being put on our head every Sunday that this thing happened to Jesus uh, you know, so you could live the life you're living now, so you better fucking make it worth it, you know? And that's that's the, the pressure and the guilt, and that's, like, why Passion of the Christ is not a story. It's the basis of Mel Gibson's philosophy it's of the life. the manifestation of Catholic <laughs> guilt is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, and it's... And, I, and that that attitude is fascinating to me because, of course, the death and resurrection aspect is the critical aspect of all christianity protestant catholic it doesn't matter um that is the pivotal aspect but it's not merely that a guy who didn't do anything wrong was killed and then came back to life it's not that it's also who he claimed to be and the things that he said and the the fact that the film doesn't address doesn't really address that for the most part um i feel like at that point it's like i, I myself i'm like w- w- that's interesting i wonder why Protestants are crying at this movie? Of course, it's terrible what ha- what happened to this mm-hmm. uh, to Jesus, or in the case, you know, to this character that we're watching. Maybe Protestants are crying because they hadn't had this drilled in their head every Sunday. Maybe, like yeah, you know Catholics what? That's, had. Ent- that's entirely possible. Like you know, you don't hear about this kind of stuff in uh, vacation Bible school and that sort of thing. <laughs> so yeah, it might be that. But uh, but yeah, I think there's also ju- there's just such a a cultural push with the movie that. I mean, I guess I guess you can put that on Mel Gibson a little bit, but also maybe just on his own studio and producers and stuff like that to really, really like emphasize like, all right, churches, get out there. This is going to be the hardest, you know, the the biggest ministry tool. And many and in many ways it was, but for some, you know, I, I've told the story before. It's been a long time since I've told it, so I'll tell it now again. Which is, by the time I saw it, I saw it with Jen and your wife. Uh, Yes, my wife, thank you. Um, and uh, uh, Jason Eakin, who was actually visiting Chicago at the time. And by the time we saw it, there was already such a... It had developed such significance mm-hmm. as a thing in uh, in the Christian world that, like, if you don't like, you know, uh, Passion of the Christ, then there's something wrong with you. You know, you, you clearly are not close to God. Or close to Jesus. You clearly don't care about Jesus. And so I saw it, and I was like, yeah, it's, it's a fine movie, you know, a lot of, lot of good stuff going on in there, and uh, I don't know, I don't feel actually that touched by it. Jen, however, when we came out to the lobby, was, was crying, 
And I remember being like, oh, she seems to have been touched by the film. I'm not going to say anything. Uh-huh. I'm not going to be like, nah, I thought it was all right. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that when she seems to be so touched by it. Come to find out, the reason she was crying, you know, bless her heart, was that she had fallen asleep during the movie. And when she woke up, because there was so much pressure to like it, uh-huh. to, to imb- not merely like it, I'm sorry, to love it, to have your life changed by it, even if you're already a Christian, um, that the idea of her falling asleep, because she was still like a relatively new Christian at this point, mm-hmm. the idea of her falling asleep, she really felt like there was something wrong with her. And I actually had to calm her down and say something that I certainly never said at the time, which was, Jen... I didn't like it that much either. And guess what? It's only a movie. It's <laughs> only a movie. And yeah. I never said that at the time. And, uh, and so that seemed to really calm her down. But it, it bothered me. I wanted to bring that up. It has, really doesn't have much to do with Mel Gibson. But like that is, but it uh, that is an association a, that I have with that movie. And it does give a good picture of what the cultural impact yeah. of the movie was, especially among you know your circle. <laughs> The people you run with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the crowd you run with. My my kind. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's... Um, I, I think we can we can move on, but yeah. it's... W- let me ask you this. Because from a formalist standpoint, you actually kind of stand by the movie. From a personal standpoint, you find it despicable. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend somebody see it? I would only recommend someone see it if they're a very serious and, I guess academically minded film fan okay i think it's it's worth seeing because it's uh not really like any other movie okay um and um it's not it's not a hacky movie in any way right but i don't unless you're really trying to further your education i don't think it's something you need to see yeah i kind of feel the same way oddly enough Uh um i have had the thought of like if se- like if someone were to take all the various uh, Jesus stories in film and edit them together into one super film, uh-huh. you know, in which you take the go- like good elements from Last Temptation, good elements from Passion, good elements from The Greatest Story Ever Told, that sort of thing. Life of Brian. Life. Eh, maybe. Frankly, yeah, I, I wasn't really joking. I know. Like, like I think you know, Passion of the Christ doesn't have the uh, Sermon on the Mount, right? No, I don't think so. Life of Brian does. Mm-hmm. Only it's told from the point of view, kind of like how you're talking about how, you know, um, you were taught that it's us people who did this thing or mm-hmm. caused this thing to happen. Like, that Sermon of the Mount scene in Life of Brian is about how, uh, no, Jesus had some really good ideas. People just fucked it up by, like, by this weird game of telephone and then, like, also bringing your own, like, uh, preconceived notions to the teachings you know like that's as as hilarious as that scene is you know like uh the meek will inherit the earth oh good for them they have a hell of a time (laughs) um um, as funny as it is it really is a comment on how uh, on like it's not it's not jesus it's just uh, it's all the humans who believe in him and jesus was human i think that's uh, a point that both martin scorsese and uh, Mel Gibson, I forgot who we were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, made that he was, um, if I, my understanding is that it's not a 50, 50 thing. He was 100% human and 100% divine at the yes. same time. Yes. Uh, and that's fascinating. Just, 
Like it in the age a, of superheroes, yeah. that's a like fascinating character. Damn right. There's a reason that in God in what is it, Godspell, where it's basically like the Jesus character has like a Superman shirt <laughs> on. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, but I, I always thought like it'd be interesting to just edit together what would probably be a four or five hour movie, uh, in which you take the good elements of all these of all these uh, films, and I think that you would incorporate a lot of elements from the passion. I mean, I hate to put it that uh, w- when it comes to like the the sheer brutality of what happened to him, you could incorporate that because it's by far the most detailed, and you know, meanwhile you can. You can take some of the, you know, Jewish stuff out, like Caiaphas and stuff like that. You uh-huh. take that out and incorporate something from another movie that maybe doesn't make them look quite so evil. And by all means, please put that scene from Last Temptation with David Bowie as pilot because it's awesome. Yeah, I love that that scene. Um, you know, because there are, there are elements of the Passion that I that I see the value in from a Christian standpoint. But by and large, it's not a movie that I recommend very much. All right. Well, let's. Um, now on to business. I feel like he, uh, you know, um, Man Without a Face certainly has its martyrdom mm-hmm. uh, to it. Braveheart, very clearly, you know, I mean, William Wallace mm-hmm. dies at the end uh, in the in the Christ pose. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then um, I feel like Passion of the Christ kind of maybe in a way completed that martyrdom trilogy because mm-hmm. the thing about, okay, Spoiler, all spoilers here for Apocalypto. Yeah. Really, you should stop this podcast and go see it before you That's listen to true. the rest of it because it's really, really good. Um, and also, if you have IFC, just wait because it's on IFC all the time. It's interesting. Um, Did you see it in the theater? No. I didn't either. Man, yeah. I wish I had. I really do wish I had. I wish someone would show it, but I don't know if any programmer has the balls to... <laughs> Not in this city, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Jaguar Paw is the name of the lead character. Mm-hmm. Um, he lives at the end. He does. He's not He's not a martyr. He fights for himself and for his his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess in a symbolic way for his tribe, but it's really, and his way of life, but it's really about himself and his family. And sur- yeah, just survival. I, there's right. not even a whole lot of, there's really not a lot of revenge. Like, he's not even really revenge-minded. He just wants to get away and get to his wife and child. Yeah. Um, and he's then he survives at the end. So, yeah. do you think he's the only one? I mean, his his, his, his family. Yeah. But yeah. No, there's two. Um, of the people chasing him who come out of the woods at the end. Oh yeah, no, I mean, is of his tribe and his village. He's oh, the right. Only, he yeah. and his family are the only ones. Yeah. Um. But uh, so, do you think Mel Gibson had completed his martyrdom trilogy? Uh, do you think this was a new like? Well, there's still, there's still plenty of innocent people being sacrificed in a humiliating public way. Yeah, but the difference is... It's they not don't the have, same. Yeah, they don't have... like it, To be a martyr, you have to knowingly and willingly die for something. And incidentally, in the film, the guy who sacrifices these people says the warrior... Uh, I believe he says like they're they are willing warriors. It's like these people aren't willing; they were kidnapped. Yeah, this is all a farce. Like, uh-huh. I was, and I was like, oh well, yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yes, that and so I feel like, and of course, no one knows what the actual ceremonies were like. So when that line was written, right, the idea that 
as far as the crowd is concerned, these guys are willing to be sacrificed, but in actuality they are not. I think that is a very noteworthy thing when it comes to the way he approaches martyrdom. Well, people do know some things about the rituals, and there are certainly, from what I've understood, lots of historical inaccuracies Mm -hmm. in Apocalypto. But I'm okay with it because uh, he created a world that seems complete and also he's more interested in the themes than Mm -hmm. being historically accurate he wanted to depict a society that was cannibalizing itself to the point of self destruction yeah and so he might have conflated some things that happened in their society hundreds of years apart or just invented some things out of whole cloth um, it doesn't the, really bother me. Were there people that were like really offended by uh, by the film? I, I don't know if I'm there sure were there was. Were I mean, there were historians who oh, okay. were making it clear like it didn't happen quite this way, or okay. like I think even like um, some of the elements of rituals and stuff weren't even Mayan; they were maybe Incan or or Aztec, Aztec or something. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember reading it. But uh, I know that all exists. It doesn't bother me because that's not what the film's about. Right. And also, it's like, it was so long ago. It's so long ago. Not that that makes it an okay thing to, like, get wrong on purpose. But it's like, it's like oh, the, this culture was really horrific uh, all those years ago. Yeah, they all were. <laughs> like, this is one of many. If you're going to portray them, you'll portray terrible things. Um, but... Uh, yeah, okay, so one thing that I that I liked about, uh, well, one of the many things that I like about Apocalypto is that by the time it came out, Mel Gibson was something of a joke, uh, in certain circles, of course, and when Apocalypto, like, with its cast of thousands and, like, uh-huh. you know, huge casting calls and it just taking, like, everything about it, people sort of were comparing it to Apocalypse Now, uh, in that, like, a director gone crazy with his big monstrous beard and all that sort of thing. Um, and I remember a lot of people, cause you and I, uh, you know, we live in Los Angeles and, and we went to a lot of stand up comedy shows. And I remember apocalypto was something of a punchline <laughs> amongst people who obviously hated Mel Gibson and possibly for good reason. Um, and then the movie came out and probably for good reason. Uh, pro- actually, yeah. yeah. Pro- I should have said probably. Um, but, uh, then the movie came out and people stopped making jokes about it because it's like it's really it's really just wonderful like it's a movie that as much it's it's like as as much as people are like ah passion the christ i'm not for that uh, at all then you watch you're like right this guy's a good filmmaker and has such a sure hand and such such a level of commitment mm-hmm. and he he has you in the palm of his hand at all times like anything you he wants anything you're supposed to feel you will feel now one could say that's manipulation but at the same time but that's kind of what filmmaking is but um i feel like he had to he had to make passion of the christ to make apocalypto i think because so whereas we talk about passion of the christ is not um a conventionally narrative film uh, Apocalypto, for all it's taking place, you know, being spoken in a dead language mm-hmm. and, and having all these historical elements, is an actually a really conventional narrative action yeah. chase film. Yeah. Uh, at, its, at its core, that's yeah. exactly what it is. But it's free from all the um, ornamentation that, mm-hmm. that 
beleaguers Braveheart. It, you know, it's a it it is immediate. It was the word I used yeah. earlier, and, and and I feel like Mel Gibson had to learn how to make yeah. films his own way, completely his own way, in order to make Apocalypto. This phrase might be a little too dismissive, but it's almost as if he had to sort of get something out of his system <laughs> so that he could feel, like you said, free to just just make a movie. Now, of course, an incredibly lavish film, and he's going to make it his own way, like, in spite of it being surprisingly mainstream and its plot points, he still is going to have it be in another language because mm-hmm. that's the language they spoke. Like, the things that he chooses to be important are fascinating mm-hmm. to me. But somehow it it feels right. I mean, do you like what, what's your take on the fact that he made a very mainstream film that did pretty well, I think, and most people like, but he, he picked, he, he made a very, one could say unmainstream decision to have it be in, in another language. What do I think of that decision? Yeah. Um, I think he's kind of a crazy person. Yes. Um, but I think it helps the film. Yeah. And also the thing is, it, you know, we talked about this with foreign films before, films in foreign languages before. In my memory, it's not in another language. Right. Like, I think of the characters saying the things that they say, even though they're not actually speaking speaking English. And for a good portion of the film, the, the, the protagonist is in a completely foreign circumstance. He's in the middle of a mm-hmm. big, crowded city. He's never seen anything like this before, and it is foreign to him. Mm-hmm. And so just by just in the way of helping us to sympathize with with him mel gibson is not even allowing us the solace of english you know what i mean like he wants us to be a little bit uncomfortable and not that having to read a film makes me uncomfortable but like it's just it's not you can't just sit back and listen mm-hmm. you and what's more as I feel like it's almost, it's a guarantee that you're going to keep your eyes open Mm -hmm. because he wants you to see everything that's going on. And the best way to do that is that you can't know what's happening as far as dialogue goes. If you, if you shut your eyes or you look away, you need to have your eyes fixed on the screen at all times. It's like a really neat way to guarantee full visual. You know, you can't look, I I don't know if he was thinking about this, but like you can't look down at your phone and start texting something. Or you can't look away say when someone is impaled on something or beheaded or what have you disemboweled in front of you and all these things happen or has their face ripped off by a jaguar <laughs> yeah whatever all these things happen in the movie and they're not unlike the intestines in braveheart they're not implied off screen all these things yeah. happen right in front of you well now while we do see uh, a, a stab happen and a heart Eventually, we don't actually see anybody reach in and get the heart. So okay. I feel like that's some restraint. There's some restraint there. <laughs> um, uh, but I want you know. I mean, we, we talked about that. There's a the primal nature of the violence in Braveheart, and mm-hmm. certainly that's even more on display here, especially with this, like the jaguar, and and there are other there are other animals throughout mm-hmm. the film. You know, there's oh yeah the the toad he uses the poison from a snake I, strikes somebody yes that's right uh, I forgot about that yeah there um uh so I'm uh, I guess I want to talk about thematically why do you think he uses the violence and I I, I think he's exploring the things in us that are primal mm-hmm. um he's exploring the way that we 
revert to those in times of trouble and uh, that are that the um, the corrupt and sedentary lifestyle of those in power in the main in the mm-hmm. in the major cities led them to fall back on their inner bloodlust mm-hmm. and uh, you know destroy their own people and and have all these you know both the ritual beheadings but also the like sadistic game that they play you know what I'm talking about when yeah. they uh, I'm assuming people have seen the movie because we told them to stop and see the movie Indeed. but if you haven't there's a part where they say here's a big open field if you can make it to the end of the field alive then you know there's your freedom on the other side and then mm-hmm. everyone throws spears at them as they run and it's pretty upsetting yeah um so it's about the violence as a thing that we return to when we stop uh watching ourselves being civilized mm-hmm. but it's also a the violence is also a thing that allows jaguar par jaguar paw to survive and thrive it's like mm-hmm. he falls back on it out of um, a necessity in the pursuit of something good. Mm-hmm. So the film is really about um, violence and and man killing other man. Yeah, in in exploring that from different aspects in different ways. And I think that we are meant to be truly horrified at the sacrifice things. I don't. I mean, if, one could make the argument that the film revels in it, but I think we are really like this is really terrible and feeling and inescapable. You can't get away from it. Like if that, well, okay, I'll get to that in a second. As Mm -hmm. opposed to when Jaguar paw, I keep wanting to say par Jaguar paw. Damn you, Mel Gibson. (laughs) (laughs) When he, uh, one by one dispatches his pursuers in the forest. That is of course, it's still, it's still just as violent in many cases. Really? Yeah. And, but like, yeah, um, when he has okay, there's a thing that happens in the movie that I feel like you see in all kinds of action movies now, mm-hmm. where um the guy I can't remember his name, but the super evil like henchman who calls him o- Olak middle him, uh, middle eye middle eye. Um, there's a slow motion thing of Jaguar Paw like um I wrote uh, middle eye totally evil. <laughs> so there's a slow motion thing of Jaguar Paw like damn it sliding on his knees as uh, middle paws. Cudgel or whatever uh, comes over him, and it just like takes some skin off just his forehead. Yeah, and like I feel like that's a thing that's used a lot now in action movies, but it's awesome there. Mm-hmm. But also, it's like you talk about how it doesn't pull punches or whatever in the, yeah. even though it's necessary for him to kill his pursuers, it doesn't pull punches when he turns around and then hits Middle Eye in the side of the head. Yeah, and he just like <laughs> st- sits there like on his knees with this blood just spraying yeah. out of the side of his but, head but spraying like a heartbeat not just a constant spray yeah, just like spray s- spray yeah. yeah it's uh it's upsetting but it's also kind of because this is guy has been this guy's been totally yeah. evil the entire movie oh yeah we revel in you his kind of enjoy it in his death and okay <laughs> of all the violence that happens in the film and and uh, jaguar paw <laughs> um, he gets pretty screwed up. Uh, he gets like well, first a couple he, of arrows in him. Yeah, in that scene, he survives the field, but yeah, 
Not without getting shot. Is it an arrow? Yeah. Arrow, yeah, yeah arrow, for him. Not, not a spear. The other guy gets the spear, which yeah, is... Yeah, it's ugh. very unfortunate. Uh, um, but how great is that? Speaking of, like, the, the first moment of, like, triumph, because the chase, the escape doesn't happen until, like, halfway through the movie. And then the second half of the movie is the chase. It doesn't... Ha- I watched the movie last night. It doesn't happen until, like... The last forty-five minutes of a two-hour and fifteen-minute film is the is the chase. Okay, so, so it doesn't, doesn't happen, happen until an hour for a while. Yeah. So we've seen him. His father is killed at the beginning. All yeah. you know, lots of his village is killed. He's been tri- you know um, trudged all the way across the the country to the city. Mm-hmm. All these people have been uh, sacrificed. It's been horrible. They're playing this awful game. That moment when the big guy's son—I can't remember his name—goes to check on the what they think is Jaguar Paw's dead body. Yeah. And then Jaguar Paw gets him in the knife with the, or get in the neck with the knife. No, he gets but, him in the neck with he broke off the end of the arrow that pierced right. him and stabbed him in the neck with right. it. Right. Um we see we see him we see the guy like check on Jaguar Paw and then we see it from the other guy's POV POV and he just stands up and sort of like stumbles a little bit and then falls yeah. like I almost want to cheer every time. Oh, yeah. Every time I watch it, because it's the one. It's the like the first moment of real empowerment uh-huh. uh, of this character. It's yeah, like the violence there. Because at that point, every bit of violence we see towards the other guys, we're like, "Damn right, get him, uh-huh. get him, Jaguar, get him with your paw." <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, it's. But oddly enough, of all the things that happen happens to him, that like. Uh, middle eyes uh, thing taking a little bit of skin off his forehead. I'm like, uh-huh. oh, yeah. that looks like it hurts. Because like, just... the thing is, you know it's going to sting for days. Exactly. <laughs> and also, it's, it's like, oh, that's like when I skin my knee. That sucks. <laughs> I haven't been pierced by an arrow. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I have... It's relatable. It's 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 uh, audience surrogacy. Um, but uh, one, thing, probably one thing that I, that I like or that I find interesting is that there does. There definitely seems to be a supernatural element to the film. Like w- while we do see the, it would appear false religion mm-hmm. of the the people in the city. There are too many coincidences, mm-hmm. and I don't mean plot conveniences. They just seem like okay. Right as Jaguar Paw is about to be sacrificed, there is an eclipse, mm-hmm. which, as it happens with this culture, is exactly the thing that will get them to stop. Right. And then they do, and then they send him off. And then and then the order in which they send the guys out to uh, try to, you know, flee the arrows and, and spears and stuff, the order that they send them out happens to be just the right order for him to get away. Mm-hmm. Because the big guy falls, and it's only when he grabs the... Uh, the bad guy's son, only when he grabs him and distracts him is Jaguar Pa able to get him. So like, but of course Jaguar Pa could have been the first one and then he would have died. Right. So then it's stuff like that. And then he is mere feet away from being attacked, killed by an actual Jaguar. Yeah. And And then he, he runs and uses, uses that. He like, he climbs in a tree and finds himself coincidentally in between a mother and her cub. And how, in the middle of all this like violence, how adorable is that baby Jaguar? It's pretty damn cute. (laughs) Um, And so like, and he is able to not merely outrun the jaguar, but like uses it to his advantage, and it attacks one of his pursuers. And then another pursuer, who's mere, who is merely tracking him, isn't paying attention, gets bit on the neck 
by a snake and mm-hmm. dies. Like there, there seems to be like things that happen to his advantage that have nothing to do with him. Yeah, he he jumps. Yeah, he, he jumps down a waterfall, waterfall and thing. he survives, and not everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, first the one guy dies from you know, the suggestion, the, suggesting that they go down and go around. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the, when the other guy, when you get again, unlike the intestines and in Braveheart, he pulls very few punches. When yeah. you, you see that guy's head hit the rock underwater, man, oh man, horrible. Yeah, really terrible. And so, like that—that that was something that I found interesting is that Mel Gibson, who is a spiritual person, no matter regardless of how it might manifest itself in his life, um, he is—he does believe in good and evil, mm-hmm. and he believes that in this case, God or some sort of spiritual force will intervene. For good. Now, of course, plenty of other characters now, die. This gets us... Okay. Oh, plenty of other characters die, but at all, like, at every point, God intervenes to keep this guy's family together. Now, this gets us to the very end of the movie, which is good. We've been going quite a while. We probably, really? <laughs> yeah, hour and 45 so far. Well, um, one of our shorter profiles, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, only four movies we managed to do an hour and 45. Yeah. Um, now, seriously, I know I warned about spoilers before, but there is sort of... This movie does sort of have a twist ending, or, yeah, or at least... Yeah, you certainly don't expect it. Yeah, so if you really do want to keep staying spoiled, I'd say just stop listening to the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, given what you just said about God intervening, mm-hmm. how do you read what happens at the end? Is that God coming to save these people from themselves? Or is that, um, well, you guys had your chance, and now you're going to be... This is what you brought on yourselves, the disease and everything we know that the Europeans bring. I, I think, and and well, that. I certainly don't think that he approaches the uh, Spanish conquistadors as a righteous punishment. And there's a quote at the beginning. I wish I had written it down uh, when I watched it last night. There's a quote at the beginning about any, any country that's destroyed from the outside must first destroy itself inside. Mm. And that I think that speaks to exactly what happens at the end, which is... The idea of maybe if these guys, if if these Mayans weren't all fighting each other, maybe they would have had the strength to fight off these guys. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like maybe yeah. they, if they had been more unified, then yeah. they wouldn't and have I, been that's, slaughtered. That's how I read it. But I all, maybe as devil's advocate, and also just having seen Passion of the Christ, mm-hmm. seeing that boat coming with the friar on it, holding and a it cross, does, it really it, does emphasize it, that. It emphasizes yeah. the cross, like. And knowing how Mel Gibson feels about that, it makes me wonder if he is trying to say that that and these people came in and, I guess, rescued all of Latin America yeah. from themselves. From themselves, and then everything turned out okay eventually. <laughs> and not really, Many hundred years. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if you saw City of God. <laughs> Things aren't going that well in the Wait, Southern Hemisphere. What are you talking about? It's got God in the title. Um but, uh, yeah, and that's the thing, and this goes to what you're talking about. If it were any other filmmaker, if you if the film was exactly the same and it said directed by Alfonso Cuaron or something like that, uh-huh. like a virtuoso filmmaker, um, and you saw how emphasized the friar was and the cross, you would think, like, oh, that's an indictment. Right. Of what's to come. Like, oh, you think this is bad? Get ready. Yeah. Because here comes Christianity. Um, <laughs> but because it's Mel Gibson, even I, like, my first instinct is like, oh, like, yeah, he certainly doesn't think this is good, except he might. Right. I, re- I really don't know. 
Um, and there, I mean, like, um, given I mean, given how expensive the movie was and how grand it is, and even like the um, the scene in the Mayan city mm-hmm. is big and expensive clearly mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of spectacle to what was built for that yeah it still looks primitive by our western european influenced understanding yeah when those ships are when you see those ships at the end it is mind-blowing it's shocking like yeah. you like because for all you know this was just taking place in the year 300 or something yeah. you know before this would have been possible. You know, you haven't considered. It is like a moment of, of culture shock. It uh-huh. just, you're like, oh, oh, wait. Uh, like, you really immediately have to readjust your thinking. And you're immediately put in the position of not merely Jaguar Paw, but his pursuers, who all three of them kind of stop. And it should be noted, all of them are unified in that moment right. of, the, of their confusion of what this thing mm-hmm. is. And so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a really... It's a really nice. It's a really interesting moment that is up for, and one that I think actually has a surprising amount of subtlety, as because he doesn't announce what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. He doesn't announce how he thinks you should feel about right. it. Jaguar Paw is suspicious, mm-hmm. but frankly, he has every reason to be suspicious of when new people show up. Yeah. Um, um, and also, sort of the last thing I want to say about it, again, even given the grandeur of the um, Mayan city, the way that stuff was shot was sort of immediate and like mm-hmm. you know down on the ground you know and and um and realistic mm-hmm. um and there's a filmic beauty to the ships coming yeah. in it's almost like braveheart the movie has <laughs> crashed in on apocalypto at the end and <laughs> hey, what are you guys doing over here <laughs> um so I feel that brings it full circle almost. I couldn't bring in Man, Man Without a Face into <laughs> Apocalypto. But people well, I, do get mutilated. <laughs> yeah, well, and I will actually bring up one thing that sort of ties us into uh, last week, in which a certain decapitation. Um, uh-huh. I'm actually okay with his use of violence in Apocalypto, with one exception. Oh. A character gets his head cut off, and then we see POV of his head. Like, of uh-huh. that guy. And so we see the camera go all over the place because his head, someone has, like, picked it up and is throwing it down the stairs. Uh-huh. And we're seeing a POV of that. And it seemed ill-conceived because in that moment, I realized he might be trying to put us in that guy's head. Yeah. Quite literally. And there are people there are people say that... And that's that's fine. Maybe Mel Gibson... Believe, I don't know if it's true or not that you can still see and understand for a few seconds after yeah. your head's cut off but maybe although i'm not sure it's like what about if your heart was cut out first <laughs> right. that's neither here nor there but like in that moment it's just it's like he he exerts such control over every element that in that moment I'm like ah someone could find this funny and i don't know if he knows that yeah it i don't seems, think he meant it that way i don't think he meant it that way but it could have seemed like that and i feel like it's like oh you should have thought had a that through with it I don't know. It 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 bothered me. I didn't think he was. I don't know. I think he he liked the idea so much that he didn't really think it through. So I'm not sure if I'd say it's, it's exploitative, but I don't think it was fully thought through because people could take it a lot of different ways. So, okay. All right. That's our thoughts on Apocalypto, both of 
both of us think it's uh it, was it i can't remember was it on your top 10 films of the uh 2000s it was on mine it was on yours it wasn't on mine but when i think back man oh man <laughs> maybe um it's one of the best so yeah it's a fantastic film that people should check out even though its maker is a despicable person um we all watch chinatown you know that's that's the way i look at it okay yeah uh and i think we we did an episode a long time ago i don't even know if it's still available on judging by the art or the artist or separating the art from the artist it is not available anymore it's a really old one yeah um yeah so uh that this definitely fits into that it's something we i believe wholeheartedly you should separate the art from the artist especially Mm -hmm. like if you like if you're a fan of rock and roll music then probably most of the people you like are awful yeah so you kind of have to even if they don't say anything racist just listen to how how they say things (laughs) yeah you kind of have to get used to separating the art from the artist uh and that's what i hope we've done here i hope we don't get too many angry emails for having said anything nice about mill gibson at all i feel like we said plenty of not nice shit too absolutely um if you live in the Los Angeles area, by the way, and you want to tell us how awful we are for saying nice things about Mel Gibson, you can do so in person. You really set this up poorly. <laughs> uh, you can do so in person September 3rd at 8 p.m. at Meltdown Comics on Sunset Boulevard for 10 bucks. It's Battleship Pretension Live. And we have three of the four slots booked as of this recording. Uh... We have three of them, two of them, a definite confirmation, a third, I'm pretty sure, but I don't want to say her name yet. Oh, really? I thought she I'm, was a I'm almost, po- I'm almost positive. Oh, that's... Because I sent, I, basically I sent her an email and said like, okay, we're going to be putting your name on the poster. Are you good with that? Uh-huh. She has not gotten back to me yet. Are you yet? sure she hasn't? I know you're pretty bad about checking your email. Why don't you check your email right now? Your phone's right there. Why don't you see if you've gotten an email back from this woman? I wish there was an app on here where I could just punch you. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and announce the other two names that we know for sure right You're now. Such a dick. <laughs> Which is um, a recent friend of the show, Benny Arthur, will be mm-hmm. uh, performing live. And a uh, longtime friend of the show and the headliner from our first ever Battleship Retention Live, the great and hilarious Bill Dwyer. And that's delightful in and of itself. Cause, yeah, uh, he, he had... He made that first one so much fun. It's the reason we kept doing them, because we had so much fun, I think. That's kind of true. He, yeah. uh... Okay. Uh, all right. No. I'm no. sorry. No, uh, no so confirmations. We, um, stay... Why don't you follow me on Twitter, at The Pretension, and I'll yeah. be announcing these things as they're confirmed, because I feel like yeah. this one is all but confirmed. I think I think it's all but confirmed, but, like, it's it's... A fairly big name, so I don't want to say, like, we got her, and then we don't. Right. So That's a shame. All right. Um, see if you can guess who it is. Um, Probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to guess who it is, uh, go over to BattleshipRetention.com and <laughs> just write it in the comments of anything. Yeah, Tyler's Winnie the Pooh article. Is it Jen Kirkman? <laughs> what about Jackie Cation? Um so that's battleshipretention.com. Of course, there's uh, reviews up there all the time by us and, and uh, other people who write for the site. So read those, comment on them. Uh, you can email us, david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. As I said, follow me on Twitter at The Pretension and follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com. What's the unofficial Twitter? <laughs> 
That's like, you always say, we'll get you next time, which doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. And I just realized that I always say the official Twitter as if there's, like, like you had to file papers somewhere uh, saying this is, this is the Twitter. Well, maybe uh, there's somebody out there who, like, it's more lessons but with a Z at the end. And they're <laughs> tweeting. They're not tweeting anything really terrible. They're just assuming that it's me. Maybe you and I should verify our accounts. Or they're just like... <laughs> They're just trying to sell you, like, uh, you know, Time Life record collections. Or, or perhaps something. a golden casket. A golden casket, yeah. Check That's my out favorite at, new thing. At, is it at The Golden Casket? Yes. Uh, yeah, twitter.com slash The Golden Casket. It's what you think it is. Um, <laughs> they followed both of us on Twitter, so we're going to return the favor by mentioning them here. And their ridiculous product. <laughs> um, that's Tyler's podcast, More Than One Lesson. My other podcast is the weekly television review show, Previously On, which is at uh, previouslyonshow.com or on iTunes. So um, thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks a lot, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.